So we'll take some time now, um, and maybe, Jimmy, you can help me keep track of time. Maybe give me a five-minute warning. We're going until uh, 9.10. That'd be good to address some of the questions that people wrote. Thanks for the questions. They're all quite good, I thought. Uh, I'll start with these. This may take us all the way through. Someone asked how Haya is doing. I sent her an email and I haven't heard back yet. So has anybody heard from Haya? She probably was, uh, oh, thanks, Jimmy. She probably was released if things went well that later that same day or possibly overnight. Um, they weren't sure. And I'm not sure what hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah. People who know Haya, if you don't have her email address, can check with me. Um, later at the end of the retreat. So, two questions that I think are related enough. I smile because somebody's dealing with a Packer fan. How does, how does one use this wonderful retreat experience, um, tools and teachings to interact with the real crazy world and people? Here we can be, we can be or become in control of our experience, um, experience issues and find a solution. How does one interact with people you need to interact with? In-laws. When they, when they have so much greed, anger and delusion, etc. Example, a Packer fan, the football experience. A Packer fan is obsessed with all their being 24-7 not just three hours on Sundays. Easy to do since they win. <laughs> the need to always win and everyone else to lose, even outside of the game. So much pride, ego, arrogance. They take 99.9% of the social airtime and social conversations. Trying to fix, point out, only causes major problems. Exclamation point, exclamation point. (laughs) And then I think a related comment, question. You have said that thoughts and feelings are just that, not to worry about what they are, just thoughts and feelings. But when I have mean thoughts and feelings, do they not hurt someone? Can't people sense that I am being, that I'm not being loving? (laughs) Well, I'm guessing we've all had not loving feelings. And so we could check, like, did we, did anybody notice those? (laughs) (laughs) And do they not lead to actions? It's also a relief to notice and admit that my thought, what my thoughts and feelings are. But yikes. Yeah, that sounds really insightful. And I just happened to be reading a, a wonderful article um, or interview with Joko Beck. Some of you know her. She was one of the great Buddhist matriarchs in our country. Died a few years ago. A Zen teacher in, outside of San Diego. And uh, I really love her two books. Everyday Zen and... Uh, anybody remember the other one? Anyway. And... Nothing special, that's it. Nothing special in everyday Zen. So, the idea with, uh, 
you know, those Packer fans in our lives. And Joko Beck says this in the article, you know, the interviewers asking her, is it never the other person's fault? Never, she says. And it doesn't mean that there aren't difficult, obnoxious, unskillful people in the world. There are unskillful situations. Well, clearly, there are difficulties around us. We've had, I'm sure, some of you have had your buttons pushed by people's activity on the retreat. As we near the end, it's nice to forgive people for whatever they have done to push our buttons and to ask forgiveness for whatever we've done that has pushed other people's buttons because we do this all the time. But even when it's really abusive, like you're around a Packer fan (laughs) and they want to win all the time and they're obsessed, um, we have to take responsibility for what our mind is doing with the experience. Like the expectation that there shouldn't be Packer fans or the expectations that I should be loving all the time or that other people should be loving all the time. Because that assumption is not grounded in reality that people shouldn't be obsessed. There are people obsessed. Sometimes we're those people who are obsessed. Like being obsessed about people who are obsessed. You know, we can we can easily get in the place of being obsessed about how obsessed the country is with football and how bad it is and what a waste of time it is and people getting concussions and it's violence and, you know, and then we they tax us and build stadiums and... And I'm not saying that it isn't good to show up for those issues and to articulate our views and, you know, to be an activist in different ways. But, and this is provocative, it's never okay to justify suffering. I mean, you can do that. It's not like your justification of suffering will be its own not reward, you know, your its own punishment. But we don't want to live in a way where we can justify the contraction or the weight in our heart. We do it. We do it a lot of the time. But we don't want to justify it as being skillful. That's not true. It's not skillful. I mean, according to the way the Buddha taught, this sorrow, this heaviness of heart is an unnecessary reality arriving, arising rather, because of ignorance, because we're not, we don't know how to relate to Packer fans, or we don't know how to relate to our own negativity in our mind when we have a lot of, like this other person was writing, um, a lot of hateful feelings, a lot of mean feelings. And so what do we do? We have a mean feeling about having mean feelings. Or we pretend we don't have mean feelings. or we blame somebody for our mean feelings. They're not actually my mean feelings. Of course I have mean feelings because you're this way. So it's like, it's your fault. These are your mean feelings. Even though they're here, we have a sense that they're due to this other person. Like a Packer fan. Or the cold weather. That's why it's this way.
And it, you know, as the person, the one person suggests that it feels good to notice and admit, then because that acknowledgement that I am upset or that I find Packer fans overwhelming or I find the negativity of our culture or the greed of our culture or the indifference of our culture maddening or overwhelming, you know, so we can just make this about whatever it is that we get upset about in life. We can, we don't want to justify um, sort of a closing down or a, a disconnection from that, but we want to meet it with a different understanding. And the Buddha has a powerful metaphor he uses in his teachings about, I think I might have mentioned it on this retreat, about salt. If you put a cup of salt in a very small container of water, it's going to totally dominate that water. So if we put bring a Packer fan into our orbit when we're in a relatively contracted state, a needy state, right? we're going to be overwhelmed. Their presence is going to overwhelm us. Or if some negativity comes up in our own mind and we don't have a lot of wisdom in that moment, it's going to seem really personal and it's going to seem really inappropriate. For me, one of the most liberating um, fruits of my practice is I don't suffer much now when I have despicable thoughts arise in my mind. I was sharing with one of the small groups um, that, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, but I had a lot of calm. In the, during the guided meditation, I had a lot of calm in my mind. And, um, and then I noticed that coming out of the set and standing, waiting for the walking meditation to begin, that there was a little delay before the person rang the bell. And I just saw all this irritation, you know, anger and should I intervene in my mind. I mean, I had, there was wisdom there, fortunately. Like, I saw what was happening. It was sort of funny that was there. And, uh, you know, you could just imagine, like, acting it out. So, isn't somebody supposed to be ringing the bell? Or, you know, or in a slightly more skillful way. Hey, hey, you, <laughs> ring the bell. <laughs> Or hating myself for having that that uh, impatience or that irritation. Like, you're a meditation teacher. You know, you just finished meditating. What are you doing being so impatient? But it was instead, like a good Dharma practitioner, I was really interested in it. It was like, wow, that's sort of interesting. And it's how it is, like when the mind is really, really calm, then everything looks really, really big. That's one of the real advantages of calm. Things look big. And so, it may be that you're actually okay with Packer fan, but in the context of the retreat, the fact that people are like that seems huge because the mind, the heart, is much more sensitive, more quiet. And so the greed that you bring to mind or you remember or that you actually meet up with just appears to be huge in relationship to the quietness of the mind. So when we, you know, following the, the steps in the breathing meditation, when we cultivate 
rapture and then cultivate ease, that's when we begin to watch the mind. Right? Because now all of a sudden we can see it. We can see all the little dramas, tiny dramas. Somebody gets up in the middle of a set and we see, oh, this is what judgment feels like. Mostly we don't notice judgments. But we see the judging mind. We see how much it hurts because the mind is so sensitive because when it's feeling something nice like sukha, like ease, this shows up, right? Gets really unified in that experience. But then it's unified for whatever else arises in that experience. Sound, disturbing thoughts, you know, whatever it is, a sneeze. So when you put salt in a huge container, then it's no problem. So how can we exist in this world where there really is meanness and there really is stupidity? You know, and a lot of times we notice it in ourselves. The greed, the anger, aggression, the ignorance. So how do we relax? Is there a way to relax in this kind of world? And these are our teachers. We can actually be grateful for them. And uh, the real key that we want to hold as, as a provocative teaching, like from Joko Beck and from the Buddha, is it's never the other person's fault. When our heart is bound up, it never helps to put it on somebody else. Are we responsible for our suffering or is somebody else? Because if it's somebody else who's responsible for our suffering, we're basically screwed as a spiritual seeker because we're not in control. You know, I have to fix everybody in order to be a liberated human being because anybody is capable of causing me suffering. Is that what we're saying? Or is there a way to be a free, loving, wise human being regardless of who we're around or regardless of the world we inhabit. Now that's the liberation I'm interested in because it doesn't seem possible for me to fix the world. I've been at it for a while. (laughs) In fact, a lot of us have been at it for a while, often at cross purposes. (laughs) Desperately thinking it's you who needs to be fixed and them thinking it's me who needs to be fixed. So it uh, it's a real shift. You know, this is part of that teaching on the first noble truth. It's a real shift when we begin to own our own experience of suffering. And we don't think it's because it's Minnesota winter or because the world is the way that it is or our friends or partners are the way that they are. Um, but we take responsibility for it, which means we have to... It's It's really intense because it means we have to really be there with it or feel it. You know, most of our blaming and most of our reactivity is a way of avoiding feeling what we feel. So when we start to own it, we start to realize we need to feel what we feel because we have to get clear about what it is or we're beginning to get clear about what it is. And this is our, you know, the threshold to awakening is to acknowledge honestly to ourselves there is dukkha. There is 
this unsatisfying, limited, hard-to-bear quality in life. And unless I'm willing to be intimate with it, I won't know what to do. I won't know how to be. We can't figure out how to be in this world without being in this world, without really connecting or being intimate. undefended, unafraid, like see it as a teacher, not as a problem. And that shift of view is essential because it will mask, okay, it's a teacher, but it's still, we think, we know it's a problem, but I know I'm supposed to call it a teacher, so I'll call it a teacher. (laughs) I'll even pretend to open to it, but I'm only doing it because it's a problem and I want to get rid of it. See, it just won't work that way. And we know this. I mean, people who've been practicing far, we know this because we've tried every conceivable way to avoid just meeting life as it is. It it breaks our heart in the deepest way. It strips away everything. That's the thing about this practice. It strips away everything. But that's where we find the freedom. It seems so hard to trust. This is why community is so important. Because all of our Dharma friends are basically, if they're doing their job as Dharma friends, they're reminding us that there's no other way but in. No other way but relaxing and peeling away the defenses. None of this, you know, this is why we should be suspicious by shortcuts or by, you know, somebody's going to save us, some retreat's going to save us, some this or that, diet is going to change us or fix us. What fixes us is not being afraid of anything. That's what really, which means we have to put down anything that needs to be defended. Because anything that can be or we feel needs to be defended, there will be something that will violate it. So we have to put that down too. This is a nice counter to this dis- the previous discussion. Um, I notice mostly on retreats that this clear, open-hearted, loving awareness just arises. It's fairly glorious. It feels like everything I've ever wanted. But for most of my life, I have only a vague memory of this state, and I'm caught in a state of aversion, a feeling I'd rather be unconscious than have to deal with X, or just feeling lost like not knowing what to do next, and vaguely feeling like I don't want to do anything. So what then? How do I practice with these icky states? It feels like all I want to, uh, it feels like all I want is to get back to the expansive state, but grasping after something that feels distant doesn't do a lot of good. <laughs> That's true. And this is, you know, this is, um, one of the consequences of actually beginning to recognize the naturalness and the availability and the inherent nature of freedom. Like it's, it's not far away. And it, it can, uh, drive us a little crazy because it can trigger a sense of, of mistrust or doubt. Like, I know it doesn't have to be this way, and yet Still, it is this way. And uh, it's the motivation that's off. You know, it's like 
the confidence isn't wrong, like the confidence, like I actually had that ex- glorious experience where everything was fine. And the mind actually was there. The mind actually inhabited that space that there isn't a problem with life. There isn't a problem with the body and mind. It's really okay. And here I am, and it's really not okay. And then it's like, well, what's true? Did I just make that up? I mean, that's this is the kind of doubt that can arise. Was there really that expanded light loving, free feeling. And where is it now? One of the things that that happens when we engage this opening process, this opening, peeling away the heart, letting the layers of defense fall away through a handful of skillful means that we've all been learning and practicing, is we have, we meet or open to really beautiful expanded states where greed, anger, and delusion, you know, the negative patterns in the conditioned mind, they fall into the background. They get really quiet or disappear for a while. And so we call that a temporary taste of awakening. It has the flavor of awakening, but we haven't, the mind hasn't uprooted the latent tendencies to suffer. So we're not really free. We're just tasting freedom. It's a temporary experience of freedom. And it's not a complete freedom because somewhere, even if it's unconscious, the mind knows that the latent tendencies to be greedy, to be needy, to be afraid, to be angry, they're still there. So it sort of spoils it in a very subtle way because we know it's fragile, like the the freedom. And we, we don't have it figured out. If we did, it wouldn't go away. So we feel a little helpless, like sometimes there's freedom and sometimes we're a neurotic human being and in a really contracted state. And uh, like I said, it can drive us a little crazy. It's like I say sometimes, you know, once you start this practice, it's better just to keep going. Now, other teachers have talked about this, like there's no going back, but it's a difficult place to be in. So sometimes we experience a contracted state and sometimes then feeling less defended, more open, more trusting, more relaxed, it's exactly the cause that uh, that brings up the sort of primal habit energy, which is, just in simple terms, to struggle with life. When in doubt, struggle with life. Because the struggling, the resistance, it makes us feel real. It's like, it be it has become synonymous with me. Who I am is these sort of collected collective patterns of struggling with life. So this force of resistance comes up, and it's not that the mind, those that pattern is resisting anything in particular. It's just the resistance itself, just the negativity itself, just the struggle itself starts to. It's sort of the background, the sort of momentum of resistance begins to appear or be seen or be felt. And it's, it's really, it's suffering for no good reason. But, you know, we always will make a reason for it. Sometimes people call this Dharma pain 
or I guess another person calls it somatic pain. And I mentioned that article by Shenzhen Young. Here's the title of it. The icky, sticky, creepy, crawly, it doesn't really hurt, but I can't stand it feeling. <laughs> and it's, it's like, this, this happens because a lot of us who are digging into this practice actually, in the great scheme of things, have a pretty good life. You know, we're not terribly oppressed. Most of us are not dealing with serious medical crises. You know, we live in a relatively safe place. And yet, you hang around with Buddhist crowds and it's like, it's so intensely difficult being a human being. And a lot of times people misinterpret this and just think, oh, you guys just don't get how privileged you are. I mean, that can be true too. But it often is. But it also is this arising of... uh you could think of it two ways. One is the mind, the sensitive, balanced, steady mind is sort of growing roots into the momentum of resistance. Or another way to think of it is it's like percolating up. But one way or another, you know, the Buddha talks about the, uh, the, the degree or the enormity of karma, like all the little and big moments of greed and anger and delusion, choosing distractedness, choosing denial, that the fruit of all that, it's huge, it's immeasurable, couldn't be comprehended or can't be comprehended. So, but it's real. Whatever that is, it's real. And we begin to open to it. And it's yucky, icky. And it can, on on the surface, it's like the crust of, physical tension that we normally don't notice. One of the telltale signs of this dharma pain is when you start reading the news, you don't feel it anymore. Or when you start, you know, getting involved in the busyness of your life, it goes away. But then when you get quiet, there it is again. Always waiting. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it can make us not want to go on another retreat or not get quiet, or when you do sit because you're supposed to, it's like you leap onto your meditation object so that there's no space for that yucky, icky, creepy, crawly feeling to come through. And it's like you're holding on, which is no way to practice, of course. Or you start thinking, I'm just going to do loving-kindness practice. But all of a sudden, our techniques are like trying to hold something at bay, which, to some degree, can be useful to create, like if there's a feeling of being overwhelmed. We need to intervene in different ways to give the mind a break. But basically, we have to find a way to accept that yucky feeling, to embrace it, to to learn how to relax with it, and to be happy about it, like it's a good sign. It's like there's only one way through. I guess it's the same answer to the previous question. But just the the additional part from this person's comment is that this often gets rich when we're having expanded experiences, enlightened experience, deeper experiences of well-being and safety and freedom. Because it's like somehow it tricks the mind into trusting life as it is. You know, when we have a deep relaxation of the heart, a deep experience of sukha, let alone even deeper states of peace, the heart 
feels in its bones, I can trust this. But it doesn't realize what that trust entails. It's like, we're not just one, you can't just trust part of life. You know, it's either like the whole thing. We either take, we either relax with the whole thing or, or we separate. We don't have, there's no like, okay, I'll take this piece. Cause everything, it's just like one thing. It isn't like two things. Mm-hmm. Sure. If it's related, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And generally, you know, for having a lot of difficulty in the dreams, we, it would be good to resolve to have a very clear intention that whatever needs to come up, that it come up in waking life because we'll, we'll have more skill than we can have in dreams. The, I mean, sometimes wisdom is quite active in dreams and we see the practice, especially if you've been practicing for a while, you'll see yourself just practicing in the dream just like you do in daily life. Just like some of your dreams, you know, you're interacting with somebody and you, you're being really wise and kind to that person. And sometimes, you know, we're not. We're taking advantage of or you know, doing whatever else we might be doing. But generally speaking, we want to resolve for that unearthing process to be done in the light of day. And so that's why it's nice even at the, if, if it's a pattern that's alive at a certain time in your life, then before you go to bed, then just see if you can process some of it right then. Is there anything, is there anything slightly below the surface that could use some love, some space, some understanding? So that it, because when we're unconscious, then we're much more likely to relate to the trauma or the difficulty that's arising in conditioned or habitual ways. Not, and often the conditioned way isn't the wisest way. Like we might have better skills, but they don't have the, mo- the most momentum. What has the most momentum is to run from it or to struggle with it. And the wisdom has less momentum. But when, when the waking state, we can feel a strong compulsion to struggle that wisdom will carry the day because it realizes that doesn't work, honey. Let's try this other way. Yeah, but that's clarity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that you figure things out, which is, sounds like that's what you're objecting to, this idea that you can figure things out. But clarity, like what clarity reveals, we're just trying to be clear about how it is, right? And that's what removes the ignorance or the darkness, the not knowing how things are. So that things are natural processes doesn't mean we need to understand exactly what the natural process is, but the fact that it's a natural process means that I can, from an ego point of view, put down the load. So we really have to get that. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.